And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Father, we thank you for your love for us. It is immeasurable. It is beyond our ability to fathom, and yet you shed it abroad in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Speak to us now in your word in that context of your great goodness and love. And truly, Lord, let the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be always acceptable in your sight, our Lord, our strength, and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome. We've spent many, many weeks in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, dating all the way back to June, that month, many months ago. And now we're back to the words of Jesus. And I love the words of Jesus because oftentimes they're confounding. They don't always follow in a nice, uh, nice, neat little outline. They make me think. They make me confused. They make me frustrated at times. But the words of Jesus are the words that we want to subject ourselves to. And you may wonder, why does Chris or I, why do we walk the, whenever we read the gospel, why do we walk it out here? Is it just so you guys can see how much we really love you? How much we love the Lord? So you can see the, the feeling on our faces? No, it's because it's a symbol of the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. And so when we read the words of Jesus in the gospels, we come down in the midst of the community. And I'm so excited tonight. We have baptisms tonight. Henry and Luke are going to be baptized. Now, I want to give you a programming note, if you will, of the logistical note. We will be moving outside for the baptism. So after the sermon, don't worry. Your things are safe. Your many things. Leave your things. Take your... Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. Take your bulletin. Take it with you out, and we'll gather around the baptistry out in the courtyard. Does everybody understand? So after the sermon, I'm going to head out that way. I want you to follow me out there. The families of the bapt uh, those who will be baptized will gather around me at the, at the baptistry. But that's what we'll be doing. Now, I want to tell you a story. I love stories. I hope that you like stories. It was, a, it was about a decade ago, and I found myself in a place that I was not very comfortable, a place that was very different, where there was danger lurking in every ditch and swamp. I had moved to Florida with my beautiful wife and three children, and God had taken away everything that I knew that was comfortable, the sort of unifying, underlying culture that is Texas, 
All you have to do is say the word, and you know that where you are, that you're safe. It's like a warm blanket, <laughs> a warm, muggy blanket <laughs> that won't go away. And up to that point in my professional career, I had been a musician, but not just a musician, a worship leader. And I had come to Florida, this place of all places, to be a, a worship pastor at Grace Anglican Church. And my life all of a sudden was different because not only was I in a different place, but my job as a worship pastor, worship leader had changed a little bit because one of the pastors came to me and said, Jay, man, you're so great. I love what you're doing. I want you to help me create another service that you won't lead. And, and as a musician, I thought, oh, wow, okay. You know, I'm not the smartest of people, but I think one plus one equals two. And I thought, well, where does that leave me? And I remember after having this conversation with this pastor, I knelt down in the pew. We were in the church, and I knelt down, and I said, Lord, what am I doing here? You see, all the things that had become comfortable to me had been stripped away. And all of the long-held assumptions and even beliefs about exactly what I was supposed to do those were proving to crumble. And in that moment, God gave me clarity. He helped me see him a little more clearly as he took me away from everything that was comfortable and closer to alligators and sharks and swamps. And as he drew me away from a sort of economy of ministry, if you will, that I had lived in, this sort of security blanket of hiding behind an instrument and behind music, I felt that those long-held assumptions about my own call, my own life, my own livelihood, being pulled away. But God was calling me not only to see him with more clarity, but to follow him with more depth and with more fidelity. And God unleashed a process that would then ripple out beyond me to my family and to others around me. And tonight, as we look at Jesus with his disciples, way far north in the villages of the region of Caesarea Philippi, as we look at this story with Jesus and his disciples, I want you to see a few things. I want you to put yourself in the place of one of the disciples. Maybe Peter, maybe one of the onlookers. But I want you to see how when the, the familiar and the comfortable is stripped away, God brings clarity. And I want you to see that as long-held assumptions and beliefs are challenged, God calls people to greater fidelity and depth of discipleship. And I want you to see that it ripples out beyond one person and time. Ripples out to us even tonight. So let's turn. If you've got your bulletin, it's on page four. If you've got a Bible or a phone or whatever you got, it's uh, in Mark chapter 8. But first, I want you to notice that sometimes, and as I'm talking to you about this, and as you put, you're putting yourself in the story, I want you to think about what God is doing in your life. Are you in a place of great comfort? Or are you in a place of great discomfort? Do you sense God speaking through suffering and necessary hardship? Or are you flying as high as a kite? It could be anywhere in between. But remember, everything that we experience in this context that our Heavenly Father presides over, it's all safe. It's not safe in the sense that we're not going to be challenged or called out to step out, but it's safe in the sense that He 
is presiding over it. It's safe in the sense that he is good, that his word is trustworthy. It's sweeter to our lips than honey from the comb, more precious to us than gold, and that he abides with us in his Holy Spirit. He abides shedding his love abroad in our hearts, St. Paul would write to the church in Rome. So remember that. Sometimes God will strip you of all things familiar and comfortable so that you will see him with greater clarity. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Caesarea Philippi, as I mentioned, is in the far northern part of Israel. It's right on the border with Lebanon. It's a beautiful place. There are beautiful hills. There are rivers. In fact, Caesarea Philippi is the region where the headwaters of the Jordan River reside. Now remember, where were all of the disciples from? They are from that forgotten and overlooked place, same place as Bartholomew, from Galilee. Galilee was not known for its observance of the law or great faithfulness to God. There's always Galilee, the people of Israel would say. (laughs) You know, we're bad, but there's always Galilee. And Jesus had taken them around the region of Galilee. Just before, in Mark chapter 8, they were in Bethsaida, a town of Gentiles. Jesus was performing miracles. We remember that Philip was from Bethsaida. And we remember that when Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem, the the Greeks who believe in God, they're from Bethsaida. They recognize Philip. So Jesus is wandering around with his disciples, and he takes them far out north, out of a place of familiarity, out of their comfort zone. Now, Caesarea Philippi was named for two different people, for Caesar, who gave the land or the region to Philip, Herod, one of Herod's sons, one of Herod the Great's sons. So in honor of Caesar, Philip named it Caesarea Philippi, just in case anyone forgot. It was an area where there was a a temple for the Greek god Pan. We're getting in real deep now. Are you following me? So there's a lot of idol worship. There's a lot of pluralism. There's just a lot of things that are not normal, not comfortable, not safe to a God-loving, obedient man of Galilee. We're out of the Holy Land, in a sense. In fact, in the Roman Empire... Who is Lord? Certainly not Jesus. Caesar is Lord. And it's in that context, in this place where seemingly the disciples have had the comfortable things stripped away from them, that Jesus asks this penetrating question, who do people say that I am? And they had the good Sunday school-esque answers. Oh, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. But he, he lasered it in and he said, but who do you say that I am? Do you see what Jesus is doing? Take, taking them out of this context of comfort, out of the familiarity, and saying, but who do you say? When the rubber meets the road, who do you say that I am? And in this moment, we kind of know who will speak up because he always does. He always has a way. He's got a way that moves us. Peter... And he says, you are the Christ. In Mark's gospel, this is the first time anyone will utter these words. Now, Mark has told us this is the gospel 
of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But now a player, a character, someone in real time is saying, you are the Christ. As the comfortable is stripped away, Peter is able to see our Lord Jesus with more clarity. And in a place where Caesar is Lord and Pan is also a cool God, and oh, by the way, there's another shrine down the hill if you want to go worship that God, Peter's able to say, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And in the place of the headwaters of the Jordan, we think of the Jordan as the beginning of the nation of Israel, the birth of the nation of Israel as they crossed into the promised land to take the land that God gave them. In that place of beginning, Peter says, you are the Christ. But with all the things familiar and comfortable stripped away, Peter is able to see our Lord with more clarity. Now, Jesus goes on. And there's a moment where when, when Peter confesses this, that Jesus now knows that he can begin to teach in a more in-depth way, in a way that they have not yet heard the disciples, especially the crowds that were following Jesus. So much so that this new teaching would challenge Peter's long-held assumptions. It would challenge his beliefs. So Jesus says, he, it says in verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So for you and for me, that's the, that's the heart of the gospel. Jesus begins now to reveal the heart of the gospel to his disciples. And it says, verse 32, he said this plainly. There's no parable. There's no allegory. It's no shell game. He's saying it very clearly, very plainly. I'm the son of man. This is going to happen to the son of man. Now, obviously this is challenging something Peter knew and held dear. This is maybe challenging the economy that Peter had set up in his mind. Well, if he's the Christ and we're, this is our land that God gave us and here we are at the headwaters of the Jordan and he's really the one God in light of all these other gods that are falsely worshipped, even in the light of, of Caesar, you know, this powerful man of Rome, this godlike man of Rome. If he is the Lord, Jesus, if he is the Christ, the Christos, then of course he's not going to be rejected by the scribes, the chief priests, the elders, much less suffer by their hands, much less be killed. And so we can only imagine Peter, maybe in a moment of discretion, maybe reining in his, uh, his other things that he would do, but he pulls Jesus aside and says, Jesus, you know, you can't really say this. All right, let's, let's pull it together here. And Jesus, challenging Peter's long-held beliefs and assumption, calls Peter to greater fidelity. It's one thing to say that I'm the Christ, but it's another to believe that I am going to suffer, that I'm going to die, that I'm going to be rejected. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. So as Peter has this long-held assumption challenged, Jesus calls him in to a greater fidelity. In fact, he says it this way. 
This is how Jesus tells Peter to be a better disciple. Verse 33. Get behind me, Satan. It is humorous, but we picture Jesus. He, he sees his disciples. He scans the situation. He turns so that the crowd, and he turns so that the disciples can hear, and he rebukes Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus says, Follow me, dude. Right now, you are not in line with God's plan, with God's will. Get behind me. In a place where everything familiar, comfortable has been stripped away, Peter has great clarity of who God is. But in that moment, when his long-held beliefs and assumptions are challenged by Jesus simply preaching the gospel, and Peter rejects that, Jesus calls him into depth of fidelity. Jesus calls him to be a disciple, but he also heightens how wrong he is by calling him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Now, we're going to see this moment ripple out beyond. It wasn't just a moment for Peter to say, oh, I should, I should really pull myself together. I should not talk out so much. No, not really. God's doing a deeper work in Peter. God's doing something to prepare Peter where he would lead the church one day, where he would be, as James was speaking to teachers, where he would be a teacher and proclaim the same gospel, but not yet. There was still a long way to go. There was still a lot of heartbreak, a lot of stripping away, a lot more calling into depth of fidelity and discipleship. And now we see that this work that God is doing in Peter is rippling out to the world around him, calling others into a similar clarity of vision, a similar depth of discipleship, verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples. Now, we don't know who was in this crowd. If this is a crowd around Caesarea Philippi, we don't know what their uh, literacy in the Bible or the Hebrew scriptures would be. We don't know, are these guys friendly with Jesus? Are they just kind of keeping an eye on things? Is it like a a, a drunken group of, of guys after a football game walking around seeing what's going to happen. And he calls out not only to the disciples, but also to the crowd. And he calls them into discipleship. Remember what he told Peter, get behind me. And he says this in verse 34, if anyone would come after me, Peter, number one, get behind me. But if anybody else wants to get behind me and come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. Wait a minute, Jesus. It's one thing for you to be rejected by the scribes, the elders, the chief priests, all that stuff. It's quite another thing for you to be killed by them and be raised on the third day. But what's the stuff with the cross? The cross in this day, friends, was the symbol of torture. It was the symbol of death. It was the symbol of shame and mockery. It was the symbol of foolishness. And holy cow, has this Christ gone nuts? Because not only is he saying that he's going to be killed, but everyone who wants to follow him, he wants us to take up a cross. Jesus is not putting forth his brand very well. He's not managing his image quite that well, is he? But friends, he is 
calling them into discipleship. And this life that he describes, denying himself, take up your cross, follow me, forever would lose his who, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul, etc., etc., etc.? This kind of life that Jesus is talking about, do you know how we describe that? That's the baptized life. When we make the sign of the cross, in a service, we follow the cross down to the front of the sanctuary. It's a beautiful gold cross, but once in the, in the known world, it was a sign of foolishness and bloody death. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, if you want to come after me, that's what you follow. That's what you take up. So when we baptize we offer to the Lord for the Lord to baptize Henry and Luke tonight in just a couple of minutes out there. They're being baptized into a life of denying themselves, of taking up their cross and following Jesus, of forfeiting everything that they could have so that they could gain everything that heaven has. Of following in obedience the Son of Man who went not first to glory, but first suffered shame upon the cross, taking every sin, every wretchedness, every wrong thing that not only you and I would do, but the whole world would do upon himself. So Jesus taking the disciples out of a context of comfort and familiarity gives them a greater clarity of who he is. And I, I can't imagine that it was welcome for them at this moment. Challenging their long-held beliefs and assumptions, he draws them into a greater depth of fidelity to him, which involves denying themselves, taking up their cross, and following him. But the beautiful thing that happens is just like what Jesus would say about the seed that dies. Only when the seed dies does it sprout and bear fruit. And this work, this gospel that Jesus proclaims is going to ripple out. So it's not just for Peter. It's not just for the disciples. It's not just for that crowd of brigands who are following them around the region of Caesarea Philippi. It's not just for the people of Israel, Paul would even say. It's first for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. And then we see how this all this is connected that this same region that Abraham came to when he came from Ur of the Chaldees came through this northern part of Israel at the gate of Dan. This is the same place where he entered the land of Canaan. And now we see, oh, okay, this is the gospel, that if we lose our life for its sake, we will really gain our life. But this is the gospel that is to be proclaimed to all families of the earth. And through Abraham, God promised all families of the earth will be blessed through you. So this work ripples out. This call of discipleship ripples out. And friends, it must ripple out beyond us here at St. Bartholomew's. That's why God's putting us here. So that he can draw people to himself to walk this life of discipleship, this baptized life. As you live this week, I want you to pay attention to what God is doing in you. 
What is he, what familiarity, what comforts is he drawing you out of? As you recognize that, receive that work. Receive that work of, and, and risk being called Satan. He loves you with a never-ending, undying love. But hear his firm and kind call to discipleship. But most of all, participate in it. Live in it. It's not sanitary. It's not free of pathogens, but it's beautiful, and it's good, and it's life-giving. And all the while, our Father is presiding over all of it. So participate in it, because it's going to ripple out beyond you. Odds are you're going to be a little bit better friend or spouse, maybe a better boss or coworker, student, maybe a better neighbor. Hmm. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hard words of Jesus, the words that we submit ourselves to and subject ourselves to. We ask you, Lord, to give us greater clarity of vision of who you are, even if that means taking us away from those things that are comfortable and familiar. Issue to us that call of fidelity and discipleship to you. And Lord, we know the cost of discipleship, that we must deny ourselves and follow you. And we pray as we do by the power of your spirit in ways that we cannot explain. Let it ripple out beyond us, especially beyond the walls of this church. And now, Lord, as we bring into your fold these that are being baptized, we pray that the seeds of faith would be planted and that we would walk with these ones the baptized life of discipleship, of denying ourselves together, taking up our cross together, and following you together. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.